0: Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.
1: How people feel about you is largely driven by how you make them feel about themselves. And everybody's in kind of a complicated relationship with themselves. And we can have some influence on that. And so if we have a politics that builds people up, that makes them feel stronger and more secure, uh, it will also tend to make them feel more open-minded and forward-looking and big-hearted.
2: Hello, welcome to Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Ezra Klein, and I'm back. I'm back from paternity leave. Um, There's going to be a a ton to say about all that, um, but for now, I am thankful to my guest hosts and the great interviews they did while I was gone, to all of you for for tuning into those. I was so happy to see how well they did, Um, and I'm really, really glad to be back. There's been a lot of beautiful things about being just at home with my son. But one of the things I've really missed is doing this show. I'll say more about this. Uh, as I said, gonna do that Ask Me Anything. I was teasing before um we had our, our baby early. Uh, but I'm gonna put that back on the schedule. So if you've got questions for the Ask Me Anything, EzraCleinshow at fox.com. Again, dot com. So now that I'm back, my first interview is with Mayor Pete Buttigieg. Uh, He is an interesting candidate. Um, He's a 2020 candidate and has a somewhat unusual background for a 2020 candidate. He's the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, which is not even the largest city in Indiana. His other run for, I don't want to call it a higher office, but a a more national office maybe, was he ran to be DNC chairman um, and he was not... He did not win that campaign or even come in second. He was third behind Keith Ellison and, of course, the current chairman, uh, Tom Perez. But he's caught fire in the presidential race. And I think he's caught fire because he is occupying a space that is weirdly open. Um, If you think about democratic candidates in politics, you you can often group them into three uh, groups. Um, And if you want to be alliterative about it, you can call it sort of pugilists, preachers and professors. And, you know, pugilists are the fighters, right? You're Bernie Sanders, you're Elizabeth Warren, the the candidates who come in and say, you know, we are going to be on your side, um, on, on the side of the many against the few. Um, the preachers are the the more value-oriented candidates, calling people to to a higher self. I think Cory Booker is probably the best example of this in the race right now, but Christian Gildbrand might be here. I think others um, uh, often verge into it. But professors often do very well in democratic politics. Um, Bill Clinton, uh, you know, who often got called the explainer-in-chief, he had a very professorial outlook and approach. John Kerry had that dimension. Barack Obama, I think of as almost the apex predator of this approach to politics. Democrats like professors. They like politicians who come and, and And their approach is to say, this is complicated, It's uncertain. We're going to figure it out. We're going to learn about it. We're going to be curious about it. And together, we're going to come up with some good ideas for fixing all of it. And it's been a weirdly open lane in the 2020 primary. I think that reflects the feeling that Trump is such a fighter, that Democrats need a fighter in response. But it's not clear to me that that's actually where the the party is. I mean, Rachel Maddow, who I also think really exemplifies this approach to to politics and political communication, remains the most popular Democratic media figure, or I should say, actually, media figure among Democrats, maybe is the best way to put it. Pete Buttigieg, I think think is catching fire because he's a really good example of this kind of politician. Um, He's giving a lot of interviews, but he's also saying a lot of interesting things in the interviews. He, like Obama before him, like Clinton before that, he ruminates in public. He thinks things through. He's willing to sort of be seen, trying to figure things out on on the fly. He likes answering weird, hard questions about identity and national identity and underlying forms and structures of governance. So this was a, a fun interview to do because unlike a lot of politicians, he's willing to say quite a bit. And, and, and one thing I would really pay attention to here is ideas on putting – restructuring how America is governed before – Um, some of the policies you might want to get through the governance system. I think uh, an issue for Democrats routinely is that they say they're going to reform the system, and then they get into power, and the first thing they do is try to pass policy through a broken system. And by the time they're done doing that, they don't have the power anymore, if they ever had it, to change the underlying governance structures. He is very, very explicitly in this conversation discussing doing the opposite and trying to govern to create a future system that might even be the people who succeed him are able to benefit from. So I think this is a, a, an interesting and important interview with somebody who we're going to be hearing a lot more from and a lot more than many expected during this primary. Again, email is EzraKleinShow at Vox.com if you've got AMA questions, guest suggestions, whatever. But here, without further ado, is my interview with South Bend Mayor Pete Buttigieg. Pete Buttigieg, welcome to the podcast. good to be with you. So I imagine going in, I guess, a matter of weeks, really, from South Bend mayor to third place
1: DNC candidate to rising star presidential candidate is a bit of a surreal experience. Yeah, it's a little heady. I mean, uh, you know, we feel like we've been building something good since we rolled out the exploratory in January. But uh, to see the way it's taken off really since we did that CNN town hall and more people had a chance to see the message. Um, has been obviously very encouraging and and uh, and kind of intense too. But I think one good thing about being a mayor, really of a city of any size, as long as it's the biggest city in your media market, is you have a certain kind of muscle memory for this. So I'm used to people coming up to me all the time. It's just that usually that's in one city, and I could go to any other city and nobody would recognize me. Now, obviously, that's different, but I'm used to that, right? I'm used to going on TV almost every day. It's just usually there's thousands of viewers, and and now there's you know it's orders of magnitude more. So uh, even though on one level, it's an out-of-body experience, it's, it's not completely disorienting, I think, for that reason. One of the things that struck me about your campaign is that when I interview mayors, there's often a
2: real focus on pragmatic, small-bore candidacy issues. So mayors will often come into national politics, and it's all about focusing on the roads. It's all about this idea that American politics has become too heady, too polarized, too focused on things that maybe people don't really care about. And your candidacy, it seems to me, has actually been trying to integrate some much bigger themes and has been pretty comfortable swimming in the waters of big meta-narratives about American politics in a way that I don't always associate with candidates coming from that background.
1: Yeah, I think as a mayor, I've always tried to... Uh, Have a thoughtful relationship between the general and the particular, Uh, just because I think you you need to have a big picture theory or at least account of things in order to do them well. So you know, early on, I was thinking about what's our vision or philosophy on you know potholes and wastewater, and 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 really thought about it and 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 thought about why you know the reason we have these kinds of infrastructure really has to do with um, freedom and and meaning for people in the sense that uh, I don't have to know what your meaning of life is. But I, without knowing what it is—whether it's about scholarship or family or uh, or enterprise or faith—I know that you're going to be more likely to lead a meaningful life if you just don't have to think about whether there's a glass of clean, safe drinking water coming out of your tap in the morning, or uh, if there's not a, a hole that you got to drive around on your way to your school or, 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 or your family member or your church or whatever it is. And so, you know, all of these very concrete, sometimes literally concrete things that you think about in an office like mayor, they're still tied to some pretty deep questions of meaning and, and you use the, those deeper questions to um, figure out how to navigate a situation where your priorities come into conflict with each other.
2: I just want to say I caught literally concrete in there, and I thought that was very good.
1: Appreciate it. See what I did there?
2: (laughs) I'm actually glad you brought up potholes. Yeah. Uh, So I read your book recently, and one of the interesting sections in it is about why you abandoned the 24-hour pothole promise.
1: Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah. So it was about a tension between being responsive and being efficient. And uh, a lot of times we think that those might be the same thing, but they're really not. Uh, what I wrote about, I, obviously as a mayor and any mayor who can who can make and keep a promise, you know, call in a pothole and we'll fix it within 24 hours. That's good politics. That's something you want to do. But one of the things I realized when I talked to our team about this uh, was if we're dealing with potholes in the order that we find out about them, rather than in a kind of efficient order that we can cover the city, we're actually being less efficient uh, and and we're going to be able to fill in fewer of them uh, than if we were doing it systematically. So it's a small example. Now, I still want to get to them within about a day, but realizing that you had to lay that aside compared to something like graffiti, where it's actually really important to be on it the same day, otherwise it's contagious um, and people are less likely to to tag properties if they know that you're going to come clean it up right away, um, it, it helps you realize some sometimes uh, demonstrating how quick you're on something is the right thing to do. Sometimes it's actually uh, a distraction from delivering services in the best way.
2: So I liked that because it feels to me like a framework that is important for politics, and it's actually for media generally right now. One of the things it seems wrong with politics right now is we're always responding to a hyped up outrage cycle that's being pushed by political elites on one hand, by media incentives on another, And all of us, um, journalists, politicians, are incredibly responsive in ways that not only might not be optimally efficient, but often seem to me to be truly inefficient, where pretty deep issues and important issues are getting left behind for very long periods of time because we're constantly chasing this outrage ball. And, And so I'm curious how you think about that laddering up, how you think about those lessons laddering up, not just to governance, but to political campaigning and political attention.
1: Yeah, I think it's particularly important in the times we're living in because I think we're in a a tectonic shift in America such that even now we may be underreacting to how deep this moment is. I mean, uh, you have basically a 30 or 40 year long Reagan consensus that that held sway over this country just as sure as the kind of 30-some-year-long FDR consensus did, and that's that's done, it's over, and we're in this weird scrambled moment, and the decisions that are about to be made may chart the course for what the next 30 or 40 years are going to look like. And so I think it's a moment that's really crying out for big ideas and for us to pay attention to just really profound things happening like the fact that uh, you know the relationship between our work and our income might be changing i mean deep stuff that's happening around us and yet more than ever we seem to be chasing the latest kind of sizzle out of Capitol Hill, something on the cable shows, who look good in the hearing, who's up this week, uh, who's down, investigations about investigations. And you know some of that stuff matters too, but it's amazing how much more that can command our attention than dealing with the issues that are really going to dictate whether our lives go well. And it's one of the reasons why. Uh, in in my stump speech, I'm always reminding everybody about 2054. I, I invoke that year as the current year that uh, that I will or, or the year that I will reach the current age of the current president. Partly as a reminder of the generation I come from, but partly to remind everybody that you know thinking about the long term is the biggest responsibility we have as citizens making choices over our politicians and their policies. And it would be I think healthy for us to hold that in mind a little more when we're deciding how to navigate the next election. So I'm always a bit skeptical of the ideas of these big, long eras in American politics. And I I know that puts
2: me in a minority. But when you say there was a 30 to 40 year era of Reaganite consensus, what would you say the achievements of that were?
1: Well, I can tell you what the behaviors of it were, right? It had a lot to do with the removal of regulation, uh, the weakening of labor standards, uh, and uh, slashing taxes at every level based on this presumption that that would grow the economy. And on one level, it did, right? The top line growth numbers are pretty great. On the other hand, uh, if my numbers are right, since 1973, uh, the income of the bottom 90%, so pretty much all of us uh, didn't budge or even retreated a little bit. Um, but I do think if you, if you look at the pattern, I mean, obviously, it's reductive, it's simplifying. But you look at the pattern by which for the better part of my lifetime, in fact, the whole thing, Democrats were saying things that you might consider in a big picture sense to be conservative. Uh, Not just the the centrism of the Clinton years, but uh, even in the Obama years, the extent to which cutting taxes was as big a democratic project as it was a Republican one. There was never a conversation about whether the wealthiest were paying too little. It was just a debate between uh, how much of our tax cuts should go to the upper uh, middle class and how much of them should go to the upper upper class.
2: One of the places I would push on this a bit is there's a long time finding in political science that Americans are operationally liberal and philosophically conservative. Hmm. That is consistently true and it's unusually true in America. It's not this way in every other country. That if you ask people big picture questions about politics, to your point about Clinton's rhetoric um, and the rhetoric of some other Democrats, they're for smaller government. They're skeptical of taxes. There there is an anti-government strain in the way Americans think about things. And then they're very operationally liberal. So even if you're looking in this Reagan period and in this Clinton period, you're We're seeing expansions of Medicaid, expansions of Medicare, expansions of of, of the size of the state, um, expansions in what the state does. Not to say there's no – there's a real trend in deregulation in this. I mean there there are things that happen that fit the story. But one thing that seems to me to be consistently true is that Democrats get into office and they end up talking in ways that are – conservative enough that they then get criticized by the next generation who then come into office and do the same thing. I mean, I remember Obama giving, I believe it was an interview to a Las Vegas paper during the 2008 primary. And he says, well, you know, Bill Clinton might've been a good president, but it wasn't transformational. He didn't break this Reagan era consensus. And then here you are saying, well, you know, Obama, he's (laughs) a good president, maybe, but not transformational, didn't break this consensus. And I wonder how much that is reflecting just an ideological orientation of the American people that both sides end up having to work within. On the one hand, you have a certain rhetorical um, advantage for conservatism, but on the other hand, as you see if you read or hear them, they keep governing through these expansions of the state and keep failing to take down things like Obamacare and Medicaid and and all the rest of it. And so, politics just always feels unsatisfying to both sides because of this fundamental contradiction
1: in well, the American psyche. at risk of sounding a little partisan, I think part of what drives that is it's turned out some of the liberal policies work so well that you can't actually take them apart without a, a major cost. Um, the, the problem, of course, is that conservatives are slow to uh, withdraw successful policies uh you know from whether it's ACA or, or uh, uh you know social security successful liberal policies but they're quick to withdraw the funding that is needed to sustain them and so basically they're setting a a kind of time bomb that's going to go off in our lifetime but i still think you know the right did a pretty good job of shifting the the basic terms of the debate rightward over the last thirty or forty years. In fact, the ACA itself is a good example, right? So, uh, you know, in the '70s, you got people like Richard Nixon talking about uh, basically universal basic income by a different name. Um, by the Obama years, we're doing a basically conservative tweak to our healthcare system um, that is characterized at, uh, by the right as sort of dangerously leftist. Well, looks a lot like Nixon's plan, actually. Yeah, and and you know cooked up in the Heritage Foundation and and piloted by a Republican governor. Um, and, and what's funny is you know single payer, which is very much a compromise position between nationalized medicine and fully private uh, payer and provider. Right, a system where you have a a public payer but but a private provider. Um, that's the middle ground. And only now are we even beginning to talk about it as something Democrats can embrace, let alone uh, something that we would consider centrist, while the majority of the American people actually think it's a good idea.
2: There's so much talk about what Democrats need to learn from Donald Trump. What do they need to learn from the Obama presidency? What do you think the lessons of his presidency are for the next Democratic president?
1: Well, I think... You know, part of it, unfortunately, this is hopefully a short-term lesson, but, but one thing you can see is that any assumptions, uh, any any decisions that are based on an assumption of good faith by Republicans in the Senate uh, will be defeated. Uh, it, it's just not working that way right now. And at the same time, I, I also think this isn't a hit on, on Obama. I mean, I don't know how many months he had total when there were actually 60 votes for what he wanted to do. It wasn't many, right? So I think he did exactly as much as anybody could possibly have done within, the constraints of the Congress that he was dealing with. If anything, one of the biggest lessons is the limitations on the American presidency, especially when you have the Congress cooked the way that it currently is. So that that's such an interesting point, though, because I don't think
2: anybody believes that the next Democratic president is going to come into play with a Congress that has more Democratic votes than exactly. Obama had in two thousand and eight. That's right. And yet, every Democrat in the race is making much more ambitious promises than Obama made in two thousand and eight. So, what is going to happen in that space in between the ambition? of the promises being made to the base and frankly to the country. And those are limits on the presidency in a world where you may have a Republican Senate. And
1: if Democrats take the Senate back with 52 votes, yeah. it would almost be a miracle. Well, part of this is strategic, if, if only by accident. So the strategic uh, advantage of being more ambitious is it reminds the American people of what's possible so that there's some pressure on elected officials, Democratic and Republican, uh, to step up and, and, and come up with something better. Now, even so, because look, you can only go so long with this divergence that we have between the center of the American people and the center of the American Congress. It's there for some clear structural reasons, gerrymandering the makeup of the Senate, the way that money is is working in politics. But there will come a point where that cannot be sustained. Uh, I actually think In a weird way, that point came and the the result of it was Donald Trump, uh, which is not exactly a corrective, (laughs) but it was a consequence of the fact that people watched their government drifting further and further away from them in terms of what it would deliver and even in terms of what it would entertain, right? A Senate where broadly popular ideas won't even come up for a vote. Uh, And the result is people reached the conclusion that the, the democracy, the system is broken and then went with whoever appeared most likely to kind of blow up the system. Um, Now, there's a more narrow tactical question which is what is the next president supposed to do? And it's one of the reasons why I think rightly the filibuster is coming back on the table because um, in the Senate as it is, there's just no way to believe that a democratic president can get anywhere. Uh, when it requires 60 votes out of this <laughs> Senate in order to do anything remotely ambitious, there's an observation. I think it's Ron Brownstein's
2: that the problem in American governance is we have parliamentary style parties but not parliamentary style
1: rules. Mm-hmm. Do you think there's truth to that? To some extent, I mean, I you know, obviously the checks and balances are doing us some favors right now, so I'm, I'm loath to to chuck them out the window. But there is that contradiction there, right now. Maybe over the long run, that has a moderating effect that we should be glad for. And it creates some tensions that I think can be very healthy in the way that the president and the Congress need to interact with each other. But again, I think the thing that's really thrown it out of balance is just how unrepresentative the Congress can get before you you really look at the system and find it broken. I want to point out something in The two answers you just gave, because I I see this a lot among
2: Democrats where there's a tension between the idea that the paralysis in the system is moderating and that it's radicalizing. On the one hand, there's a view, which I think makes sense, that the veto points, the filibuster, they create over time um, a, a moderating force in the system. Donald Trump cannot do a bunch of things that he would have otherwise been able to do because he did not have 60 votes in the Senate. On the other hand, I think it's, uh, it's conventional wisdom among Democrats, and I generally agree with it, that the consistent experience of the American people electing politicians they're excited about who have a plan for the future and then watching those politicians fail to deliver is radicalizing and then leads to people like Donald Trump who blow up the system. And so there, there's something there that I think for Democrats to come up with a, a theory of the future, they have to decide which of those they think is a more important force. I'm not saying they both can't be true, but you can't protect both of them simultaneously.
1: Yeah, I think that's smart. I think if if anything, the moderation came from the relationship between the two political branches and the judiciary, uh, which tended to be, especially when you had folks like Souter and Kennedy, really thinking for themselves um, and acting outside of predictable partisan patterns, uh, tended to be more, tended to have more of a moderating quality, I guess, than anything going on in the dynamics between the House, the Senate, and the President. Um, It's a good point, and and uh, and again, I, I think the the upshot of it right now is that we have this really disordered system uh, producing some pretty radical outcomes. Uh, uh, Not just the rise of Donald Trump, the fact that a lot of people, a lot of independents that we used to assume were centrists, having narrowed down their choices to either Bernie Sanders or Donald Trump, right? Um, Showing you that, that there's something far beyond kind of traditional patterns of ideology to explain how people look at what's happening around them, get pissed, and then decide they want to burn the house down. So what's your theory of the system? I think you're somebody who's thoughtful about
2: the dangers of going through a campaign where you promise big things and then fail to deliver them. So if you're elected president, what is your theory of how you don't end up having been somebody who over-promised and underdelivered?
1: Well, I think you have to view the, pol- the, the right kind of scale to view a political project, uh, like a presidential campaign, even a long-shot presidential campaign is that that is not smaller than a presidency, it's bigger. And so uh, you know I'm under no illusion that some of the things we need to do to improve the system from the structural reforms I've called for, electoral college reform and uh, perhaps Supreme Court reform to make it less political, uh, to the policy moves we have to make, I'm under no illusion you can do that in four years or even in eight but we have to create the the we have to begin and then create the room to do that. Again, I think that's what conservatives did very effectively, raising ideas that were preposterous in the late 60s and mainstream by the late 80s because they weren't afraid to chip away at at that consensus and, and really shift it over time. And so I guess my theory of the system is in in addition to the things I think you need to do to our government to make it more representative, to have a Congress that's more likely to reflect the American people and uh, and to have a Supreme Court that's it's more likely to to be in line with where the American people are. Um, you also just have to recognize that we're not. this isn't just about vindicating our ideas among electeds. This is about uh, making sure that the range of ideas talked about among the American people is such um, that there's space for things that we want to do, uh, and that you can build support for them, not one election at a time, but over time uh, until hopefully, eventually we're in a we're in a system where there's a consensus around what I would consider to be an enlightened democratic capitalism, so that even Republicans, when they get in, can only do so much damage to it. So one of the lessons of Obama's presidency to me is here's a guy who
2: ran for president very compellingly on changing the system. I think people forget what a reformer Obama ran as in 2008, and then he gets into office, and he's faced with the same choice every president is faced with. He's got some big ideas about how American politics can be better, but he's also got a bunch of ideas about how everyday life for Americans can be better. And he's got limited attention and political capital and staffing and all the rest of it. And so the energy goes into how can you pass, I mean, first stimulus and dealing with the right. economic emergency they had, but but after that healthcare reform, tax reform, the, the set of things they wanted to do. And every time that happens, the things like campaign finance reform and, you know, gerrymandering and automatic voter registration and that basket of of anti-corruption and um, pro-small-D democratic ideas, it falls by the wayside. Hmm. And you talk in your book about recognizing that as mayor... What you bring to the job is the ability to spend political capital. Yeah. So would you decide to spend political capital faced with that choice not on the tax plan, not on the health care plan, but instead on a knockdown drag out fight to change
1: the nature of the Supreme Court or to change how American elections work? Again, I think this is the difference between somebody coming in 2020 who's thinking about 2015. 2024 versus somebody who's thinking about 2054. Uh, so to me, yes, it's worth that because we're talking about setting the terms of the debate as they will play out for the rest of my life. Now again, this is not a knock on the Obama administration. Guy gets in there, the house is on fire and I would argue even if there's some disappointment on the left um, that you know ex- extending health care to millions and reversing what was on its way to being a great depression is not bad for a few years work. Um, but I do think that uh, in a way that wasn't as obvious then these structural things have risen to be the absolute top priority. And the kind of horror show that is Washington today is the evidence of that, that um, we would have not have thought. I mean, look, Democrats thought the re-election of George W. Bush in 2004 was apocalyptic, right? Um, I think had we been aware in 2008 that conditions were building that would make it possible for someone like Donald Trump to get elected in 2016, uh, some of these structural reforms might have rocketed to the top of our list, even as we were wrestling with the Great Recession. So
2: there is a tendency whenever people hear discussion of structural reforms to say power grip, mm-hmm. right? If a Democrat is talking about electoral college reform, if a Democrat is talking about court reform, there seems to me to be a dangerous dimension of how American politics has fallen now. that. The there is a consistent disadvantage for the democratic party that creates a cleavage where democratic reforms, small d democratic reforms, become big d democratic power grabs in the minds of many. And so what are the governing values behind a program like that that can make it seem like good government, not partisan
1: power grabbing? Well, it's both, but that's precisely the point. Right. If one party benefits from fewer Americans being able to vote and from our government becoming less and less representative, um, then there's something wrong with that party. And of course, that party will say, "You can't do this. This is to our disadvantage." And to us, we're saying, "Great. That's why. That's both why you need to be defeated and why we need to have a fairer structure." I mean, there is no. I have heard no argument in principle for keeping gerrymandering the way it is. The arguments in principle for keeping more corporate dark money in politics, are they exist, but they are, uh, I would say, unconvincing at best. I mean, these are basic good government ideas. Now, I do think we need to be smart about it. It's one of the reasons why it irritates me a little bit that every time I talk about uh, Supreme Court reform to make the institution less political, someone writes a gloss on it that that makes it sound like I'm I'm proposing that we simply add justices for the purpose of pulling the court further to the the Left now, I'm interested in in things like perhaps the. Uh, actually, I think I first saw it outlined uh, in, in a Vox piece about uh, where it's you great have, great website. <laughs> um, there, you know, there are alternatives from report, you know, rotating people up from the appellate bench to having ten of your justices selected politically, but having them be part of a court of 15 and five of them have to be selected by a unanimous consensus of the other 10, right? Those are much more interesting to me than saying, well, I'm a Democrat. I want more Democrat appointed justices. So let's make it you know, 13 or 15. Um, because anything we do needs to be rooted in making sense in principle. And something that makes sense in principle is to protect the court from being the scene of an apocalyptic ideological fight every time a vacancy opens. And, uh, and to to set up the court so that it has more people thinking for themselves. I mean, we should be able to justify anything that we're doing, both up here at the uh, kind of values level, the ideal level, and the conceptual level, and very close to the earth in terms of how it's going to make things better, how it's going to make our lives better. And I think that's uh, the case for good policies coming from our side of the aisle. Um, and, and again, if you stand to lose from creating a fairer system. The problem is not from the proposed reform, the problem is you. So one of the things though in terms of who stands to lose
2: is part of your political framework has been the Democrats have forgotten much of the middle of the country, that they've become either too captured by or too identified with coastal liberals basically. Mm -hmm. And that part of what you're gonna bring to the party is an appreciation for smaller cities, for states Democrats have abandoned, have stopped talking to. And I've heard you repeatedly calling out this kind of coastal Democratic Party for operating with a condescension, operating with an anger even towards these parts of the country that they feel rejected by or that they're rejecting. But the flip of that way of looking at politics is – there is an anger among those parts of the Democratic Party because the way the political system is built, it is built to amplify the political power of those areas. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm a Californian right. and my vote counts a lot less, particularly in the Senate, but not only in the Senate, than somebody who lives like not just in Wyoming, but even in Indiana. Sure. And it seems to me that it's going to be a difficult line to walk to be speaking for those parts of the country, but also taking away or trying to rebalance a balance of political power that has heavily benefited them and that I do think accounts for some of this tension in politics between a part of the country that feels forgotten but really has a political power to press that feeling of being forgotten, to to create an emergency if they're not being sufficiently tended to, and parts of the country that also feel like they have problems and also feel the country getting away from them, but often find their opinions dismissed in politics because they don't have the power despite having the numbers. I think it's
1: true to, push to it. the point that your unit of analysis is the state. But I actually think the state has become the least relevant of the three levels of government for most of us. I think we all have a very strong sense of the country we live in, and we all have a very sense of the community, a uh, strong sense of the community we live in, whether it's a you know rural county or, or whether it's a city. Um, states matter. Obviously, our, our country uh, uh, is composed of them, but uh, you know, are, are my interests really any different from the people six miles from my house who are in Michigan? Um, and if so, is it important to put more of a thumb on the scale, uh, for my vote than for theirs? And, and how does that actually make me better off? And you could argue that actually it's, it's, uh, in many ways, not all, but, but in many ways, the, um, less populated politically redder areas have been among those that have suffered the most, uh, from a kind of complex of power um, that has led to a lot of concentration um, that, that, you know, we don't talk about this much, but the same kinds of things enabled by regulatory capture in Washington, the same kinds of patterns that have us worried about tech companies becoming too monopolistic, powerful, and concentrated. It's exactly what's happened to ag companies that have become monopolistic or or, or concentrated Mm -hmm. or powerful uh, and is making life tougher in a lot of rural areas too. So, you know, I get that there's some rationale to making sure, and the structure of the Senate, of course, is the biggest example of this, that less populated areas have their voices heard. But I'm not sure that most residents of most uh, uh, sparsely populated areas are materially any better off um, because of the distortions that have been built into our system, especially when it comes to gerrymandering, which doesn't really make any of us better off. So I'd agree. I'd very much agree with
2: that in general, but the problem with making the kinds of reforms you're talking about is that it forces you to confront the state-based dimensions of American politics. I mean, the Electoral College treats us as states, mm-hmm. and the Senate, of course, does. Gerrymandering and sort of geographic representation in the House in, in other ways, too, has a different gloss on it, right. but, but but it's a bit related. And I, I guess this gets to to one of the underlying questions I often have about politics, which is we have a lot of fights that materialize rhetorically, right? Coastal liberals versus heartland (laughs) voters, that kind of thing. And there's often a hope that if you just change the rhetoric, you can change the fight. You can end the fight even. And I often wonder if that rhetoric is not just uh, an expression of fights that are much more material and much more fundamental, which is there's a balance of power that is under contention. And that if you begin to go right at that balance of power, um, you're going to have a lot of groups that say no. So, I mean, a good example of this is, a couple of years ago, you had uh, the rise of this national popular vote compact where state after state was joining into uh, an agreement that would have basically obviated the Electoral College without making constitutional reform, but as soon as it began to get to the states, that are somewhat empowered by the electoral college that fell apart. And so it never got to that number where it would have had enough votes to end the electoral college. And to me, that was an example of um, when you get down to the nitty gritty of it, when people find that the current apportionment of power benefits them, they become very jealous in its protection.
1: Yeah, but I think the people who have found that the current system of power benefits them are, you know, party chairmen and state legislators, not, not actual people in, in the sense of, you know, most Americans think it would be a good idea that the person who gets the most votes ought to be president. And I think that's widely true in different states. Yeah, maybe some states more than others, but uh, you know, is it is it deeply important as a matter of principle to somebody uh, living in Nebraska that the American people can be overruled by the Electoral College? Uh, maybe, but I'd be a little surprised.
2: Do you feel that you can mobilize public opinion in, in these ways? One of the the things that seems to me to continuously frustrate people is a public opinion is here, right? It's for something that they care about, and then as they try to translate that into political power, it it right. falls off. Like I, I think what you're saying here is correct, but the intensity. Of the state legislators right. and party chairmen who hold some level of power over these issues tends to be higher than the American public's intense interest in electoral college reform.
1: Yeah. Part of it's a question of priority, right? But again, I think we've seen some reasons why maybe this deserves higher priority. Part of this is is uh, not to get too meta, but it's the very structure that we're in. I mean, it's the problem that I'm trying to solve, right? That these things have a very powerful kind of Uh, framework reproducing energy to them. And and look, there have always been, especially for people running for office, at least two good sets of reasons not to get into this structural stuff too much. They're almost contradictory, but they're both out there. One, it's esoteric and boring and you're never going to catch on with this stuff. And then two, it's it makes you look wild-eyed and dangerous and and you're going to scare people by being so bold right and and both of those i think caution against uh, talking about these things with airtime you could be using to talk about other things we care about that are widely popular from dealing with climate change to raising the minimum wage but i think we've we've really hit a different moment in our political trajectory where we are so Paralyzed in our ability to address anything from wages to the climate to you name it, by the dysfunction in our system, that it's time to tend to our system. And I'm really interested by figures from the fairly recent past, like Birch Bay, my home state senator in Indiana, who was doing all kinds of constitutional reforms in the 70s. Mm-hmm. You know, um, uh, trying to do the ERA, uh, lowering the voting age to 18, the 25th Amendment, which is getting talked about more and more now, and even the ones that didn't make it, like the ERA. You know, that fight basically led to Title IX. I mean, a lot of good comes from taking on these structural battles. Now, I'll admit that the only time in my life I've seen any candidate for the presidency get much traction with the process argument would be John McCain and how a lot of smart college students, for example, were really drawn in by how he was talking about campaign finance reform in 2000. Um, But if there was ever a time to say, hey, the system's broken, I I get that, and here's some ways to fix it, I would think it would be now.
3: In each episode, Katie talks to authors, historians, athletes, Nobel laureates, and everyday people about why we make irrational choices and how we can make better ones to avoid costly mistakes. Listen and subscribe at schwab.com podcast or find it wherever you listen.
2: So I want to move to to theories of voters. Um, Mm. Something that struck me in your writings and in some of your interviews is an implicitly different idea of what motivates voters than you sometimes hear. And you talk in your book about Helen, Mm. who's a Trump voter, um, I believe in South Bend, who is married to an undocumented immigrant, whose husband was then deported by Donald Trump and or by his policies, I should say. And you write, quote, many responded judgmentally towards anyone, especially Helen, who could vote for Trump and then be surprised by this sort of outcome. But to do so is to assume that voting is about ideology and policy and analysis Rather than identity and environment, could you unpack that story a bit and, and what you what you mean by
1: that? Yeah, so this was a story that that uh, came to my attention and got wound up getting a lot of national attention. But he had a guy he he uh, lived in our community, undocumented from Mexico, been there for probably twenty years. He was in Granger, which is right by South Bend, very conservative area, and he owned a, a, a restaurant, kind of a, a a diner. People loved him, community loved him, and he went in every year for a checkup with ICE. He was trying to get toward his green card and. Uh, first year of the Trump administration, he went in like he always did and he didn't come out and he wound up getting deport- deported. Now, the really striking thing was that uh, people were furious. Uh, the people who came to eat at, at his place, people who knew his family, and they were all conservative. Most of them would have voted for Trump, including his wife, Helen, who is a US citizen. And what I realized there was you know, they were as outraged as I was by what happened to this guy. He was a good guy, nothing, uh, not even a parking ticket, I think, against his name. Um, And obviously, a lot more harm was done by his deportation, especially for his family and his kids and our community, than was done by the fact that he was there undocumented. And, you know, what I realized was that they were not getting up in the morning thinking about Republican ideology. This was a Corner of our community where being Republican was synonymous with being respectable. It's just as it is probably for uh, maybe Democrats in, in in the Bay Area. Sometimes you just you know it's it's a social thing. It's it's kind of understood that that's and if if that aligns with a, a media diet where all you're getting is is conservative radio and Fox News and that kind of thing, you know what they might think of us politically um, are the kinds of things that, that if I thought that I'd uh, I'd be hesitant to break bread with a Democrat myself. What is your definition of identity politics? I, you know, I think identity politics usually is a, uh, it's not even a noun, it's an interjection. Like it's used <laughs> to wave away any kind of discussion about our identities. Um, or, or it's used derisively by people who don't want to go there. Um, look, at, at its worst, it can be uh, a lot of different ways of saying you don't know me. And different people from different groups that have had different patterns of exclusion, all being mistrustful of themselves as well as majorities because you know we've all been hurt in some way and uh, and it just fragments the hell out of us. Right now, I would argue that we're experiencing peak white identity politics as practiced by the White House. Um, but, At its best, you know, what identity really means is we all acknowledge where we come from and what it means. Uh, We all have complicated identities. I mean, mine is a young, gay, you know, Episcopalian, first generation immigrant, Midwestern, red state, uh, liberal, intellectual, veteran, you know, um, and some of these things are are, are racial, some of these things are are social. And the more we think about what our identities mean to us, the more we can use them to build solidarity with other people and understand where other people are coming from. Not because I can align exactly what it's like to be gay with what it's like to be, I don't know, a trans woman of color. Like I have no idea exactly what it's like but um, we can use different experiences we've had as, as ways to, um, I think, form up a, a sense of common cause. And, and in that sense, I think being more rather than less conscious of the ident- identities that are attached to our stories can be a very healthy thing. How does that
2: then inform an actual political strategy? I mean, when you say that that Helen and others – and I think this is true. It's not just true for conservatives. I think it's true for liberals. I'm, people on this show know I'm I'm a broken record on arguing that political affiliation is an identity. and it's wrapped up in other identities but our core political identities are are red and blue republican democrat but to take seriously that people's voting is driven by their identity and environmental context what does that mean in terms of reaching them i think a lot of uh, a lot of folks who have had a view that you that American politics is about persuasion Are beginning to learn that's really not true, that persuasion is is often not on the table, but it's certainly not on the table in terms of just having a policy argument. So if well, you're trying to reach other voters, how do you, how do, you do it in that it, it, when you're trying to cross over identities?
1: Optimistically, it means that you can reach more people than you think. I often think about the math, and I should compute the actual numbers, but there must be just based on election results. A lot of people in our county who must have voted for Obama and Trump and Mike Pence and me. Uh, so that's one indication of how um, you know you can cut across kind of policy arguments or ideological fights in order to reach people and you know in the 90s the idea was ideological centrism that's how you do it you just split the difference with where the other people are but um i think what we're hitting on now is that there are other terms for reaching people that really uh, some of it's affective some of it's uh, you know values so, uh, to me a lot of politics just like a lot of life has to do not so much with how people feel about you Or or rather, let me put it this way, how people feel about you is largely driven by how you make them feel about themselves. And everybody's in kind of a complicated relationship with themselves. And we can have some influence on that. And so if we have a politics that builds people up, that makes them feel stronger and more secure, uh, it will also tend to make them feel more open-minded and forward-looking and big-hearted. Just as if you have a a politics of resentment, it can make people more closed, more inward-looking, and I would argue more politically conservative. I really want to hold on that idea for a minute because it seems very important to me. I mean, my
2: read of the identity literature is that if you take it seriously, the fundamental question people ask about politicians is not, is this person going to improve my material well-being? Hmm. But is this person going to raise or lower my status hmm. and my group status? And one of the things that has happened in American politics is that as the groups have become more tightly clustered around each other into two very big and very well-sorted coalitions. On the one hand, um, that answer has become much clearer, and it's also become much then harder for somebody who's in the other coalition or is seen that way to seem like they're raising your status because it's being mediated through, you know, Fox or MSNBC or, or, or whatever else. So, How do you do that? How do you, in a very conflictual political atmosphere where a lot is about drawing distinctions and um, mobilizing your own base in particular, how then do you assure other people that for you to win – it's not going to lower their status. It's right. not going to mean that their group suffered a loss and their group is falling behind in what feels to many people like a zero-sum competition for respect in American society. Right.
1: Well, that analysis is, is – I mean, if we're thinking about this in terms of what's going to happen to the status of my group, the natural question that follows is which group. right? Mm-hmm. And uh, I think part of what good politics does is it puts us in the biggest possible group. So one of the things I loved and one thing I really admire and, and, and seek to emulate about uh, Obama as a political figure, for example, even though you know, there, there are many ways in which you know the, the changes we hoped for didn't come about in the Obama years, it is true that he made people feel good about themselves simply being Americans who were part of that. It's one of the reasons why he was the only Democrat since LBJ, not Clinton, uh, not no other Democrat since, since LBJ to carry Indiana. I think because there was a sense that as Americans we were sort of lifted up by being part of this project that aspired to be somewhat post partisan, post political, and post racial. You know, one of the really moving things about the, uh, uh, the the night he was he was elected and the night he was sworn in were the chants of USA. People were chanting USA in this warm, loving, inclusive way that we all felt good about. Kind of different from the way people uh, sometimes broke into chants of USA at the Republican convention with Trump, for example, where it felt like it was something being chanted at someone, uh, right? Uh, not, a, not, a, not a chant of USA as in like, oh, we're all we're all part of this, but uh, you know, uh, as a rebuke to anybody who is against my vision of what it means to be an American. And so, I think the project is to make the group in question as big as possible. Now, the great irony when we do tie this back to material life and, and to policy is that one big group you might talk about is the 90% of us who economically didn't really get anywhere despite the tremendous growth in in the American economy over the last 30 or 40 years. And uh, I think uh, that group has cleverly been carved up by people who peddle other group definitions, smaller ones, um, as sources not just of identity, but of resentment. So is there a vision of
2: national identity that you think Democrats need to embrace that they haven't? Or is it a vision that they have embraced but haven't communicated?
1: Well, one implicit one that I think we need to double down on and communicate better has to do with process. Now, this sounds a bit strange because usually when we talk about identity in its most aspirational sense, we're talking about arousing emotions and creating a deep feeling of belonging. People are always excited to move a conversation to um, process. But, but look- in a way, that's what American identity is. I mean, think about it this way. We have this word un-American, right? Which is often used in abusive and and, and, and terrible ways. But just the fact that that word exists is interesting because it's usually said of, of somebody doing something in politics or, or saying something in political or social debate. It's hard to think of something that could make a person un-French or un-Japanese. I don't know if they have those words or not. But if they do, it's probably about, uh, probably ties back to an ethno-national identity, right? And, you know, maybe it's unfrench to renounce butter, right? I mean, it has to do with culture. Mm -hmm. Um, For us, I mean, being American has a lot to do with, maybe mostly to do with process in the sense that that ours is a political creed. Like the thing that makes America, America, our self-conception, the only semi-convincing justification for American exceptionalism, for example is this idea that, that America represents a way of governing, a way of doing things that makes us all better off. And it's a combination of our, our economic commitments and our democratic commitments. But I think ultimately, most importantly, it's our democratic commitments. The idea of how we choose our leaders makes us who we are as a country. And so I'm all for a stronger vision of Americanness. I will even, you know, a bit contra others on my side of the aisle, be glad to talk about American greatness. But if we're talking about American greatness, then I want it to be in terms of uh, a way that we all come interact in the public sphere that defines our culture, a culture defined by our politics in a way that maybe no society other than maybe Soviet experience, you know, some failed societies have done, but but no successful society has been as closely aligned with its political system since perhaps Athens but also one that makes our everyday life better. And that's the thing I really think is important too, that, that, that the greatness kind of resides in in the fact that we've been able, at least we were able, to draw us into a system um, that made our individual lives better than a lot of the other societies out there.
2: As you think about contrasting that vision with the idea of American-ness that powers Donald Trump's campaign, candidacy, presidency, because I do think he has a vision of national identity that he is a clear communicator of, how do you define that? vision of national identity. What is what
1: is the other competitor in this space? It's slippery, but it's basically an exclusionary one, right? I mean, you can't get to Trumpian sense of American identity without it being about what you're not or being about all, all the people who can't come in that uh, you know, if you're uh, I mean implicitly, sometimes if you're black or, or brown, but certainly if you're an immigrant, you know dif- different features about you, then you don't get to be as American as I am. Uh, and and that of course is the essence of white nationalism, uh, which is the worst kind of nationalism that our country could be practicing at a time when there's actually a comparatively healthy Americanism out there um, that that looks at what is best in in our society um, as the basis, not not a race, not an ethnicity, but but this kind of social uh, compact we have among us is the thing that makes us. Uh, the thing that we all have in common as Americans. One of the things I've seen you trying to take back in this conversation is the language of freedom. Mm-hmm. Can, can you talk a bit
2: about your conception of freedom?
1: Yeah, this is very important to me because I think we've we've allowed freedom to be monopolized as a theme by conservatives. And when I think about freedom, I think about freedom too, proactive freedoms. Uh, so I think conservatives and libertarians make this simple error that they assume that government is the only thing that can make you unfree. And it's why I talk about how You're not free if you can't sue a credit card company that gets caught ripping you off. You're not free if your uh, reproductive choices are dictated by male politicians and bosses based on their interpretation of their religion. You're not free if you can't marry the person that you love. Uh, There are a lot of sources of unfreedom. I mean, healthcare is freedom if it gives you the freedom to go start a small business because you know you can leave your job and still have coverage. And those kinds of freedom, which again, were democratic bedrock at one time, right? I mean, FDR was all about freedom. Four freedoms, yeah. Um, uh, you know, that's where I think uh, we should be talking a lot more uh, about why we're even here. And again, to me, this, this is a kind of very concretely grounded thing because I think about even good trash pickup as something that enhances the freedom of the people I serve back at the local level. I've seen at different times um, Democrats try to make this argument of positive freedom.
2: And the place where it often seems to me to collapse a bit is that if freedom means freedom from almost anything bad you can think of, trash on the streets, not having healthcare, um, not being able to see your credit card company, then it begins to mean, I don't want to say nothing, but nothing achievable. How do you create the limits on it that make it an operative political philosophy as opposed to simply another way of saying good things?
1: Well, I think it's uh, tearing down barriers to living a life of your choosing. Now, some of those barriers may come from almost cosmic forces in your uh, let's say, physical health. right? Let's take that as an example. Uh, I can't, out of policy, make you completely free from, uh, from illness. But actually, I can make you substantially free from a lot of illnesses through everything from cancer research, uh, federally funded cancer research to the way a local government inspects your restaurants and makes sure you don't get food poisoning most of the time. So I think whenever there's an addressable barrier to your well-being, we, I can't make you thrive but I can tear down some of the obstacles and empower you to thrive. And I think the reason we have government, the reason we have society really, is that we figured out that when we get together, we are more effective, some of the time, uh, at tearing down those addressable barriers. So when I've
2: seen this done before, there's a rights and responsibilities question. Um, How much do you get just as a member of American society versus how much do you have to work for, right? Mm -hmm. Is there freedom to live a life of plenty if you are not going out and earning that through paid labor? Or is freedom, that kind of freedom, something that you should only have, you have the right to work for as opposed to the right to have? Where do you draw some of those lines?
1: Well, I think the way we've the implicit way we've drawn the lines is that there there are civil rights that come to you no matter what. right? You don't have to be a hard worker to have the right to vote. Um, but then when it comes to prosperity, um, that we expect that to be in proportion to to how much you give. Now, I believe there's some table stakes just for being part of uh, our society. You can make good on them in different ways, but it's why I think that the concept of service is so important. It's one of the things that motivated me to serve in the military. Other people might find its expression through volunteer service or or, or other forms of service. I think there's some sense that you got to give back. Um, But I also think we should be careful about making rights contingent on responsibilities, except in a very broad collective way. Like, you know, my rights as a citizen are obviously kind of uh, not separated from my responsibilities as a taxpayer. And by the way, it's amazing to me how many times, especially when somebody's emailing me mad about some city issue, that they put in in all caps, I am a taxpaying citizen and this, or a taxpaying resident here, right? Um, because it's it's there's something empowering. And, and I'm thinking on one hand I'm thinking like I ought to pick up your trash whether you you're paying your taxes or not. Um but it's also this sense that that you know those are um th- that's part of how we make good on our membership in this political body that we're all part of and and that's that's fair game.
2: So let me ask you the question we used to on the podcast which are what are three books you've read over the years that have influenced you that you oh, recommend
1: uh, to the audience. Um, well, uh I've you know, the one I always begin with is Ulysses because it's, it's this book about, I mean, it's known for being this impossibly difficult reference laden uh, book. But really, it's about this guy going about his life in Dublin over the course of one day. And when politics touches his life, it's, it matters because it affects him in the everyday, which I think is a great way of understanding politics in general. And like all great works of literature, it's a book about, you know, what it's like to be a human being. Um uh on my bedside I got a copy of Gracian's manual. This was a seventeenth century monk who who uh gave advice to people uh working in the court. It's just a reminder. he's got all these little little um uh kinda aphorisms uh, that reveal that the way people behave in, uh, you know, whether I'm thinking about people on the city council in South Bend or people in the DNC when I'm entering a presidential process is not that different from the way people behaved in 17th century Spain. And so it's just a reminder of, of, you know, kind of how universal some of this stuff is. And uh, um, you know, I, I love fiction. I um, haven't had as much time for fiction as I'd, as I'd like lately, but I think anyone in politics should be reading fiction. Let me leave you with one other one that um, uh, I've been dipping back into recently. Uh, an author named Kotkin wrote a book called uh, Armageddon Averted. It was a study of the end of the Cold War and the, the collapse of the Soviet Union, but very readable, very compact. And It's interesting because um, it really paints a picture of how you get into a world of democracy, uh, sorry, capitalism without democracy. Um, and that's a debate that I think is opening up right now. You know, How democratic is our country right now? Why does it matter? Because the interaction between capitalism and democracy has become unhealthy. And if you want to see just how unhealthy it can get, look at Russia. Mayor Pete Buttigieg, thank you so much for being on the show. Good to be with and you. good luck on the trail.
2: <laughs> thank you. So that's the show. Um, thank you to Mayor Pete Buttigieg for being here. I, I really want to call out something he said in that conversation about politics being about the way... We make people feel about themselves. I think a lot of life is like this, right? I think our personal relationships are like this. But there's sometimes this idea that politics is this place of pure rationality or at least materialistic pursuit. And it's not just that. I I think it's a very, very simplifying way of thinking about it to ask, how does this politician make people feel about themselves? And then you can begin to integrate what goes into the way people feel about themselves. It's their identities, it's their groups, it's their communities, it's what they need in the world, it's whether they feel respected. Um, And I think that one of the really toxic things in democratic politics is this constant idea that people are voting against their self-interest. Self-interest is more than just material. Self-interest is also how we feel about ourselves, how we feel that us and our community are doing in the world. And if you are not able to um, play in that arena, if you're not able to appeal to people in that way, then you're not appealing to their self-interest because self-interest is psychic, not just material. Anyway, I'm very fascinated to see where Buttigieg takes that insight and whether or not he's able to hold it in a primary where the way you get asked questions in the media and a lot of what you are asked to comment on and deal with is designed to make some groups feel better about themselves while making other groups feel quite a bit worse about themselves. I think Obama was often able early in his candidacy, early in his campaigns to get out of that trap, but even he eventually got sort of subsumed into the broader ways we structure these fights. Um, So that's something that I want to be watching closely. And also in general, trying to think about how this podcast can make better and not worse. Uh, But thank you all for being here. Thank you to my producer, Jeff Geld. Thank you to Brittany Spangler for engineering the conversation. And the Ezra Klein show will be back in a couple of days.
0: Support for this show comes from Fundrise. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets.